Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you'll find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'm joined today by Anthony Bradley, Distinguished Research Fellow at the Acton Institute, and Dylan Palman, Executive Editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a Research Fellow here at Acton. We'll be joined later in the program by contributing editor to the Acton Institute, Emily Zanotti. This week, there's a blank space in the show topics, and we will write in Taylor Swift and the Super Bowl conversation that has been ongoing. And we'll discuss what, if anything, Congress should do about social media and kids. But first, this week, we're joined by a special guest, John Grove. John is managing editor of Law and Liberty. He previously taught political science at Lincoln Memorial University. He is also the author of the essay, The Gods of the City, which appears in the winter issue of our magazine, Religion and Liberty. I want to remind you that Religion and Liberty is available at select Barnes and & Noble and Books A Million stores across the country. But you can save the time and the trouble by subscribing to get our beautiful magazine in your mailbox four times per year for only $29.99. We'll include a link to where you can subscribe in the show notes for today's episode, along with the link to John's essay. So, John, I'm going to let you go ahead and, and jump in here and tell us uh, what is your essay about? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, pleasure to be here. Um, so this essay is, as the title uh, might suggest, the essay is uh, engaging this broader conversation that a lot of conservatives are having about the proper relationship between religion and, and politics. It's uh, it's related to the kind of broad Christian nationalism theme that um, that has sort of started to dominate a lot of conversations about uh, on the right about what conservatism is, what conservatism is supposed to be conserving and so forth. In particular, um, it came out in this national conservatism statement of principles that came out probably a little over a year ago now, um, where one of the statements uh, was the the need for a sort of public religion. And, and the national conservatives movement more broadly has embraced this idea that, that conservatives should be pushing for a, a specific substantive public religion of some sort. So uh, so the paper is engaging with that a little bit, uh, particularly um, what, what prompted me to write this one in particular was historical arguments for that position, but that kind of look back at the American founding, look back at, um, at English history um, and, and Protestant history more generally, and argue that historically speaking, the general idea of a of a fairly religiously neutral state is very new. That Christians haven't um, haven't generally supported this, and it's something that Christians shouldn't do right now. Um, and I, I I would say the the core of the papers is kind of challenging that proposition, not the historical argument for it, but essentially arguing that there are uh, two essential differences between our present circumstances and the times that these people are hearkening back to that makes this concept of public religion a very different thing. So essentially, um, there are very big differences between the idea of a of an established church that oftentimes people are, are, are pointing back to as evidence that Christianity requires this sort of overlap 
Um, so big differences between an established church and today, what I think the national conservatives are mostly aiming towards, which is a kind of open-ended kind of amorphous understanding of Christianity, or oftentimes they'll identify it just Protestantism, broadly speaking, no specific church, no specific doctrine, but that these things need to sort of be integrated into public life in various ways, whether it's through political rhetoric, public schools, so forth. Um, and essentially, I argue that, that that difference, of course, is necessary. There, there's, no one, uh, uh, there's no one specific a church that could become an established church. So they don't argue for that. But so instead uh, recognizing that there is this kind of sectarian uh, variety, um, they argue that you don't, you don't need an established church. You need, uh, you need just this general public religion. But um, essentially the, the main difference between that, I think, is that the established church, even though from, from our perspective, looking back, the established church seems like this utter complete intertwining of, of religion and politics um, that in fact, the established church was allowed for a, a little bit greater division than the kind of generic Christian politics that I think the national conservatives point to, because with the concept of an established church, you had a, a separate institution that was being recognized that sort of was understood to be the authority on the content of, of, of what the faith was. Um, it had a, it had a clergy that was devoted to its success that was at least theoretically devoted to um, upholding the the dogma of the church and so forth. And so in some ways there was a division there that was possible. But once you don't have the possibility of an established church anymore um, because of sectarian variety and you still want to have a kind of a politics that's sort of infused with uh, with religion, uh, then you start to the, the the substance of what Christianity means, what is the faith really all about, becomes much more intertwined just with the political process. So along with sectarian diversity, uh, the other big fact of life that that you have to contend with today is uh, is mass democracy as where where just mass messaging is is the uh substance of politics and so once you start doing that then the sort of political rhetoric is no longer a government pointing over to a, a, an established church and saying hey we're christian in the sense that this is what we mean but instead there's this just vague understanding of what it means to be christian it gets tied up entirely with the political dynamics of mass democracy, of what sort of messages are going to be successful in, in uh, democratic politics. And so that sort of public religion, I think that the national conservatives are, tend to argue for, uh, becomes a very amorphous thing. It becomes very political. Uh, it becomes very moralistic, I think, in the sense that uh, that Christianity just comes, comes to be identified with uh, whatever um, salutary uh, political goal uh, there is out there. Um, and basically it, it uh, becomes, uh, becomes a political tool. Uh, not that I argue for an established church either. Established churches obviously had their problems as well, but, um, at least in theory, I think there was, there was this idea that the church and the state could be connected, but still very clearly doing separate things. Whereas when in, in the age of, um, of sectarian uh, variety and, um, and mass democracy, you don't have that possibility anymore. So, so that, uh, the upshot then being, I think conservatives should be uh, conservatives who are genuinely concerned with uh, with religious faith and believe that we need um, to to we need a robust religious faith um, for ourselves and for our country and for everybody else. They should really be concerned to um, to police the boundaries a bit between politics and uh, and the church. I want to ask you this since this term has already come up: it, is 
Christian nationalism really kind of actually a thing? Because as I watch the debate on this, I'm, I'm reminded of this line in, I think it was one of Ann Coulter's books, where she was uh, trying to make the point that the way the term, and this has only gotten worse, neoconservative is thrown around, it either means like two people or everybody who believes in a strong national defense. And I kind of feel the same way about the term Christian nationalism, that you're either talking about a couple of people who have self-identified in that way. I think that, that Wolf guy has even written a book about it. So there are definitely advocates for that kind of point of view. Or the other way that it is used is to represent anybody with a broadly Christian perspective who believes that those beliefs should be brought to bear in any way on the operation of government, even kind of just in an old Bill Buckley, you know, my faith informs my view kind of way. Um, so is there is there a specter actually out there of Christian nationalism beyond just a couple people talking about it? Is there something here that we should take seriously? Um, yeah, I think you're right. I would say instead of a specter out there, there is a, a, a spectrum out there um, in that you're right. I think the term came about from, you know, Washington Post reporters and Atlantic people who were kind of trying to create this sort of boogeyman of anybody who's a Christian who also votes um, becomes a Christian nationalist. And I know I think in, in one of the Acton uh, publications, I know you had a, uh, a piece by Daryl Hart who um, – who took one of the "Are you a Christian nationalist?" quizzes, and he came up as a Christian nationalist. With you know, if anybody's read Daryl Hart, you know he's pretty much on on he's I, I think pretty much on the on the wavelength I'm talking about here. Uh, he's not somebody who is looking for the church to take over the state by any means. So if somebody like him is is uh, identified as a Christian nationalist according to these sort of you know quizzes and, and and identifiers, there's definitely a problem with it. So I I. I think it's one of these things where in some ways conservatives can sometimes let let their opponents define the terms of the game a little bit and then they kind of play into it almost almost as if they're trolling a little bit but then they do start to craft arguments to support it so in one ways you know the left sort of calls everybody a Christian nationalist. And then there's this inclination to say, all right, well, fine. Yeah, I am a Christian nationalist. And um, because there's nothing wrong with the things that you're saying about me and then sort of craft that identity. So yeah, there's the, there's the extreme position that is like, like the Stephen Wolf book and then that sort of thing that is really building out this comprehensive uh, understanding of it. But um, that, that is why I, I think I did mention Christian nationalism once or twice in the, in the essay, uh, the phrase, but I did try to base it a little bit more on, um, on the national conservatism uh, statement of principles and their 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 general understanding, I I, I use a little bit of the the book uh, by Yoram Hazoni, who's a major um, uh, national conservative figure, um, and what they are doing, I think it's it's not the sort of Christian nationalism you see in Wolf that's that's completely built around this uh, of the idea of um, of sort of the state becoming. Well, I don't. I don't want to put words in Stephen Wolf's mouth. I guess, but my sense is the state becoming completely subsumed within uh, the uh, or controlled by by Christianity. Um, there's this more moderate, right? right what Hazoni calls for uh, guys like Josh Hammer and others. You know, um, there's this a little bit more moderate, and that's really what I had in mind here. Is like the moderate stuff sounds often sounds okay, but I think underneath it, there are, there are some things that we need to be concerned about with, or we need to be concerned about. 
Yeah, so I, I really liked your essay. It's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, as far as, you know, on the ground, real Christian nationalists, there is Stephen Wolf. I have had the misfortune of reading his book. Um, there's also uh, Oklahoma State Senator Dusty Deaver, who uh, got some attention last week, I believe, the viral video that was spreading around. In a Rolling Stone um, piece, yeah. Yeah, and, and there's a, a Christian nationalist statement of principles as well, or something like that, some kind of statement um, that he co-authored. I've only been able to find a second draft version of it. Supposedly there was going to be like some conference in July last year and they were going to finalize it. And if that ever happened, I, I've seen no evidence on the Internet uh, nor any final product. But um, there are some signers to that, I believe. Um, so it's interesting that there is there are some real people. I, I agree. I think it kind of began as like a boogeyman term. And then you have people like Wolf, you know, like a lot of people just trying to capitalize on, okay, this is the term people are throwing around. What if we owned it? But then I read Wolf's book and I was like, oh, he actually is exactly what, what <laughs> you know, it turns right. out there are real people out there that fit this description, even if, you know, they're using this term far more broadly. Um, and uh, so I, I guess it, you know, you've said that you're, you're more concerned about the moderate folks. So people like Hazoni, uh, who's in fact Jewish, but he, you know, he says that every nation should kind of, I, you know, acknowledge its religious, you know, identity or heritage or that sort of thing. So he kind of argues that, well, the United States should be Protestant in some way or something like that. Um, I feel like on the on the extreme side, uh, the people that I find um, far more alarming, it's at least like clear to me what the payoff is for them. On the moderate side what do these people really want? Because at the end of the day, it seems like, are they just upset that there's no like school prayer anymore? Like it might just come down to that. And it just seems like a weird thing to even care about. Maybe that's just because I grew up, you know, I was born in the eighties, grew up in the nineties. Um, and I don't know, I went to a pretty not great public school, but I was fine. I was still a Christian when I graduated. You know, I didn't, didn't really have the effect that everybody thinks it or says it would have. And so I'm pretty skeptical towards the importance of that kind of thing. Is, is there more to it than that? Or is, or is that kind of all they're shooting for? Um, I think that's part of it. Um, the, I think it's more robustly and firmly a political movement first and foremost, which I, I would contrast that maybe with like the Stephen Wolf. Uh, approach and, and then also with like the Catholic integralist types too, where I would say that's maybe more first and foremost a religious argument that they're making. Um, this one I think is is a political movement in the sense that it it sees I think it sees religion as a sort of source of unity. Um, it sees religion. I mean, I use I use this phrase sometimes because I don't like religion being used that way. I use it as being used for spare parts. Um, that religion is, is, it has a utility to them, right? To that, um, it can be used as a source of unity. It can be used to kind of generate enthusiasm for a certain project. If you see this as, as kind of the, the natural outgrowth of, of your religious faith and you're, you're very excited about uh, pursuing this or that political project or policy and so forth. So I think there's a lot to it, but, but certainly the core of the NatCon argument, I think is that it's important for identity, and so maybe that's just a form of unity. They 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 want to cultivate this idea of a national identity, and and religion is necessary for that sort of national identity. And I'm I'm actually wondering if if perhaps this is, in some respects, a large lament about the disintegration of WASP culture in the American experiment, and particularly 
the decline of Protestantism. I mean, it, it, it seems that what, what, what's being paralleled here is, is also the loss of, of some sort of center on what the Protestant project was. That began to disintegrate in the 50s and 60s. And that really undergirded so much of that political unity. And I'm, I'm wondering if perhaps this is a bit of reverse utopianism or maybe some nostalgia for a period that seemed to be that, that seemed to be infused by politics, but maybe it was infused by religion. So, so maybe the project, what's missing is not the is not a national conservatism politically. Maybe what's missing is a national conservatism religiously that then fed into the politics. What do you think of that theory? I yeah, I think uh, I think for the most part that's that would be spot on. I think it is definitely a nostalgia for sort of mid mid century um, or a vision of mid century American unity that um, that that fed on. Um, mainline Protestantism being a de- sort of default American religion, and and in some ways, again, right, what what they generally point to is is the idea that we just we need some sort of generic Protestantism that you know a lot of mainline denominations in that time were losing some of their distinctiveness, and and and, and you could you could just talk about being a Protestant and um, the the sort of differences that had, had distinguished uh, different uh, different denominations were not as not as clear, but yeah, I think a lot of that political, that then the, the political identity and the religious identity definitely feed into one another and go both ways. And that's part of, uh, part of the, the underpinning of, of, of my essays is, is those sort of things are always going to go both ways. And uh, you don't necessarily always want them going both ways if you want them uh, going either way. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think this is related to what, what you just said too, is that I think there's a big di- distinction that is, is missed when you, you use the phrase reverse utopianism, and there's there's a big distinction I think that they miss um, in that the d- difference between a genuine uh, religious unity and then certain kinds of political rhetoric, potentially political policies that come out of a genuine religious unity. Now, again, I'm not saying at any point there was a genuine religious unity in the United States, but but I think in the vision that they have, there was at one point this genuine religious unity. People were pretty much all on the same page, um, and then political life could kind of blossom out of that in some ways, right? Because we believe the same things, yeah, our politics is going to be different. I think there's more legitimacy to that than going looking backwards and saying, we're going to recreate that where there isn't legitimate uh, political unity, or sorry, there isn't legitimate religious unity, but through public messaging, through public policy, through a sort of concerted conscious effort, we're going to kind of create it, right? We put, we, we create some public school prayers. That public school prayer is actually a great example because if you legitimately have people who are all pretty much Christian, is, is, do I have any problem with like a public school having a Christian prayer? Probably not. I don't think it's the end, the end of the world. But if you legitimately don't have that, then that prayer is going to be a contrived thing. It's going to be created in some sort of policy wonk, uh, um, uh, by, created by you know policymakers. It's going to be a a, a sort of uh, synthesis that's crafted for the political needs. Um, you're trying to impose something rather than just kind of reaping the rewards of a society that is religiously unified. Um, so again, I'm not saying there ever was that sort of unity, but at least in their vision, there was. 
but there's not today. And so what you're going to be doing and the sorts of policies, they might look the same on paper, but they're really not because on one hand, those policies and those, then that rhetoric is just kind of, you know, coming out naturally. On the other hand, you're having to craft it. You're having to sort of create it. It becomes your own, um, your own creation. Yeah. It, it actually seems that, and this is a, a point from De Tocqueville, right? That that what what made the American project work was these sort of shared social mores, and we don't have those shared social mores anymore. And and that's to me, and part of partly what this war is about. Uh, how do we recapture those? Is there any sense in the research you've done on how they might propose that we recapture these shared social mores? Is it politics? Is it social media messaging? Is it films? Is there any sort of method or proposal to recapture these mores that then gives us the politics that we want that allows for school prayer and maybe the Pledge of Allegiance and things like that? Yeah. Um, well, the, the answer definitely seems to be politics. Uh, you know, one of the big things you hear from um, from from this crowd, I know I'm speaking very vaguely when I say like this crowd and these these people. And so, uh, but from the national conservative movement generally, um, uh, I think you hear a lot the the argument that the law is a teacher, you know, which of course is a, a common phrase, and and there's definitely some truth to that. I think it's more complex complicated, but there is the sense right that if if you get the right laws, the laws teach people how to act, and 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 people gradually conform to them, and it might be a long term endeavor, but. Um, now, how you get the right laws, I don't think there's there's as much of a good answer that they have for that and how you get the right people if, uh, if you don't already have the social mores. Um, um, I wrote a piece in, in public discourse uh, maybe uh, five or six months ago or so um, where my, my theme was if you want to change culture um, – concerted political effort really isn't the way to do it. Uh, changing culture requires people who aren't primarily focused on this overarching vision, but are focused on the various aspects of culture that are important. You know, you need filmmakers who want to make good films. You need, um, you need, you know, priests and pastors who want to be first and foremost, just good priests and pastors, not because, not because doing so will save Western civilization, but because that's what we need, uh, you know, and you need, um, you need teachers who just, who want to teach students well. Um, and that sort of thing is the sort of thing that you just can't really do with like an overarching political message. And that's my main critique of, I, I think, the the national conservative approach, which I think is much more focused on politics, be, be that either either law or, you know, passing the right law on policy or, or yeah, just like you said, you know, messaging and, and the cre creation of a political movement that sort of gets people excited behind, you know, we're going to save a save America or, or, or re-Christianize America in, the, in this big public movement that we're going to do. And I don't think you're going to get a very healthy culture doing that, but I, that seems to be the approach. Uh, to build on that a little bit, um, I really like that you, you ended your essay talking about that, you know, the real harm, the real danger with this kind of thinking is probably not political, but it's more the harm it does to the church. Um, and I, I really think that's right that, you know, when I, I, in basically every case, every variety, whether it's the actual Christian nationalists or it's even just this more kind of softer, we need a Christian civil religion, you know, national conservatism, you know, we've, as we've already established, it's a pretty utopian reading of the past. I mean, sure, in the 50s, there was kind of this general Protestantism, but 
it probably didn't feel great to be a Catholic in a public school and all the prayers were Protestants, right? You know, and frankly, if you talk to a lot of those Protestants, they had strong opinions about other Protestants, not to mention Catholics and, and other people. Um, I remember, you know, growing up, I was, I'm Greek Orthodox now, but I was evangelical growing up. And in the 90s, there were still people that said, you know, Catholics aren't really Christians, right? Like that was still a mentality that I think is- That is, still exists too. It does still exist today, but I think it's a lot rarer today. So there's, there's a, a strange sort of nostalgia for a time that I actually was probably a lot more polemical um, than anyone wants to admit. Um, and and that there's, I think that was a bad thing, but, um, but what they want never really existed. And what they're trying to do, therefore, can't be done. Because um, it's not like they have this historical foundation that, well, we did it once, we can do it again. They, they always imply that. They always tell a story that makes it sound like that's the case. But that's, that's not actually the case for anyone who knows this history. Um, and so in reality, they are instead putting out an image of this is what Christians and politics look like. Um, so could you talk more about, like, where is then the harm for the church? What, is, what do you see as uh, the danger here? Yeah, well, I, I would go back to what I just said uh, a few minutes ago about the, you know, the idea of the law as a teacher, right? Idea that um, that with the right public policy, you send the right messages and kind of teach people the right uh, the the right um, you know ways to think and 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 the right things to do. Um, essentially, I think given the reality of 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 mass democracy, any anything that's going to come out of um, a concerted political effort that that uses the label Christianity. Um, there's right. I think the the idea of the law as a teacher is much more complicated than they say, but there is a reality to it with that when you have a right when you have the public seems to be going in some direction, right? It's attractive. Uh, it 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 pulls people in. It makes people excited. So when you have a political movement that's kind of wearing the label of Christianity, I think the main the main threat, and 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 you're you're absolutely right. I think the main threat is is to the church and and to the Christian faith, um, is that basically you have somebody running around, you know, wearing the mask of Christianity and telling people this is what Christianity is. Um, so for you know both for faithful Christians who are just you know uh, who are were misled by that potentially, um, or or people who are not Christians who now look at a political movement first and foremost as what Christianity stands for. I think that has um, that has bad consequences. That um, it's it's worth um, it's worth for, it's worth it for Christians to want to be seen as something that is set apart from that and. Um, and that, and that's kind of what I said. You know, going back, with well, the reason I started with that idea of the the established church, right? That's at least in theory, the idea of an established church allowed. Right, Christianity is here. Right, this uh, Christianity is something set apart, um, and it has a spiritual purpose, um, uh, and and its message is fundamentally spiritual. The politicians may, you know. Reference God, right? They may reference Christianity, but at least you have, in theory, this possibility that that you can maintain that difference. And with in in today's world, I don't think you do. The more, um, so I, I use this phrase in the essay a little bit, is that a lot of times it just boils down to this moderate position that that the NatCon statement and others kind of take is that well, we just we should be talking about God more often. But there's just not very much. F, um, there's not very much detail or specifics about well, how should you be talking about God and just people talking about God more often might not necessarily be a very good thing if it's not if it's not uh, something worth hearing and, and and something that's beneficial the law as a teacher point I, you know, you're, you're right that 
there's some truth to it and it is more complicated than it is typically presented. But I, you know, I think here's where my, my libertarian instincts kick in and want to remind people that, you know, if law is a teacher, it is the over-disciplinarian teacher that pulls out the, you know, as my seventh grade teacher once called it, the board of education, which was a paddle that she never <laughs> used, but like the threat was hanging over the entire class. Um, you you do want people to remember that at the end of the day, anything that is codified by legislation into what we call law is going to be enforced by the government. It is going to be enforced at the end of the day by at the barrel of a gun. So I, I you know, when I hear some of these arguments, that what comes to me, given the kind of history that you were talking about, is you know one, it's debatable that the past that they seem to want to return to these halcyon days ever were actually what they claim to be. But I'm reminded of this talk that I heard from Charles Murray a few years ago where he was talking about he walked through previous great awakenings in the Americas and, you know, basically made the point of like, you know, I'm a social scientist, so never, never and never always. I'm not saying the only thing that is going to improve us and get us out of this morass we're in is another great awakening. But if not that, then what? And it seems to me like a lot of this project is to say, like, you know, we, we don't think the religious awakening that we wish to see from people is coming fast enough. And if anything, it's moving in the other direction. So we're going to use the tools of the state, which, again, you know, libertarian instinct part of me comes in to say at the end of the day are backed by violence to just encourage people to push them into that direction that we that we think that they should be going. Yeah, I think I think that's right on. Yeah. And and you know they're they're backed by they're backed by violence. And the other thing is that we they're always trade-offs, right? Politics is always is is a realm of trade-offs. And for people who are are sincerely uh, attached to actual uh, specific religious dogma, right? You don't, you don't want trade-offs, right? The, the religion is an area where you can't just sort of make a make a concession and make a few compromises here and there, and then well, that's my religion now, right? It doesn't that doesn't work that way, right? Capital T truth is is, is should be ruling in religion in a way that capital T truth can never really rule in in politics. So they're always they're they're trade-offs, and 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 you're you're right, of course, uh, backed by the um, backed by by force. And they, I don't think you can make a plausible claim that they, that whatever emerges that's kind of called Christianity that, that is going to be promoted is, 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 is really going to be, have a claim to, you know, being the truth of Christianity. It's going to be, it's going to be a sort of compromise uh, package that, that comes out of the political process. And I'm, I'm actually wondering though, this is to, not to play devil's advocate, to, but, but, but maybe to think in fairness, Maybe the pressure is, hey, listen, the left has done this, right? Like the left has used the law as a teacher on marriage, on gender, right? The left has used politics and policy to get multiple institutions to change their standards. Why don't we just do the same thing? If they use politics and policy, why can't we use politics and, and, and policy? It seems that that's, that's maybe part of the impulse is, well, the left has done it, and, and, and now maybe we should also do it. What do you, what do you think of that thesis? Yeah, I've, uh, I've thought a lot about that. I could, we could do another hour on that probably. Um, uh, that is, yeah, that's a really common, a common answer to it. Um, on the one hand, then, my, my uh, conservative political theorist hat comes back on and says, well, conservatism actually suggests that the left is wrong about the way politics operates and the way um, politics ought to be conducted, not even ought to be conducted, but is conducted. Um, and and so it, to the extent that one 
embraces sort of the methods of the left, for the most part, one uh, abandons what conservatism generally teaches about how politics operates so that, um, you know, revolutions aren't um, – aren't just bad according to conservatives. Revolutions also don't actually accomplish what they uh, expect to do. Um, and so it's always, it's easier to look backwards and identify that the left consciously planned out this, that, and the other and got to where we are. But I think a lot of times it's more, uh, you know, Edmund Burke had a very famous line about um, in, in Reflections on the Revolution in France uh, uh, that, um, the uh, I'm not going to be able to quote it exactly, but the the upshot of it is um, it's easy to destroy it, and it's not easy to build. Right? That that uh, a rage and frenzy can tear down in a half an hour what what it takes a hundred years to build up or something like that, uh, something along those lines. Uh, and so that revolutions are very easy at kind of tearing things down. So to the extent that there was um, a degree of sort of public stability on on morality and and uh, a general consensus. Um, about how we ought to live our lives to the extent that that did exist at some point. Yeah, revolutions are very good at tearing that down. And when you tear that down, you get a whole sorts of other sort of ideological beasts that arise. Um, and But I don't think, you know, a lot of them, if you would take look at the, the left ideology that you see today, then go back to the 1960s and say, is this, would, would anybody have described what their goal was as what we have today? Probably not. Um, I think to a large degree, right? These things, right, revolutions grow out of control, and they go in various directions, and uh, and then people justify them with all sorts of theories that uh, that that kind of show why this, right, where this was the goal all along. But I don't think most of these sort of ideological beasts that we have today on the left are were planned out things, right? Uh, they. Um, you know, the left did, I think, very much try to under undermine and succeeded in undermining a lot of um, consensus on 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 moral questions, on on, on and political questions, um, but it wasn't as planned out as I think a lot of people like to to argue today. And and likewise, then when conservatives try to do it, I think it would also go off in uh, in a lot of unplanned directions. So that would be my short answer. But like I said, I think a lot about that question for sure. And uh, there's, a, there's a lot to dig into with that. Well, we may have to have you back on in the future, John, to discuss that uh, question in depth. John Grove is the managing editor of Law and Liberty, and the essay he has in the winter issue of Religion and Liberty is The Gods of the City, which we have been discussing today. We'll include a link in the show notes to that essay, as well as a link where you can subscribe to Religion and Liberty so you can get that magazine in your mailbox four times a year. John, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me. I enjoyed it. All right, let's move on to our second topic. And I, I did think long and hard about whether we would discuss this. And I think there are some important angles from which to discuss this story. So if people aren't aware, it is probably because you are not a human being who is terminally online. But the, the way that this kind of came into reality, I think, is the fact that a President, former presidential candidate was echoing these kind of crazy conspiracy theories that are now being created around Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey and the Super Bowl, specifically the allegation that this is some kind of a psyop that um, I guess that, you know, that the CIA and some the deep state is orchestrating things, apparently going back about 15 years in order to make Taylor Swift the most popular pop star in the entire world 
And to give right. Travis Kelsey this uh, career as an incredible uh, tight end in the National Football League and in college before that, the foresight that is always involved in these kinds of conspiracies is amazing to me. But that uh, apparently what is going to happen is uh, in the middle of the Super Bowl, uh, I guess at halftime uh, or maybe at the end, very um, redolent of the 2006 Fiesta Bowl, uh, which was the Boise State-Oklahoma game, which was an incredible football game. But at the end of it, um, uh, the running back, Johnson, who scored the winning touchdown on a Statue of Liberty play, goes over and proposes to his head cheerleader girlfriend that something like this is going to happen at the end of the Super Bowl. And then they're going to endorse Joe Biden. And this has been the entire plot all along. Now, look, part of this is obviously crazy. Uh, Don't forget that there's a there's a vaccine angle here. Yes, that's right. Travis Kelsey at one point did a commercial for Pfizer. Yes. So clearly. And, and encourage is, people yeah. to voluntarily get vaccinated is, you know, right. I, I, I maybe you have some points if he was arguing for mandates. I don't believe that he has. But here's the reason I that I he cares. <laughs> here's the reason that I that I want to talk about this, because I think it's important for, you know, people with uh, our perspective on the world, even even to the last conversation we were just having with John Grove to engage with the culture. And I'm going to read uh, really quickly here. Uh, because this has been on Twitter, apologize to the people who hate when we reference Twitter, but it is where a lot of conversation on these kinds of things like happen. We're, we're still calling it Twitter. So I'm still calling give, it give Twitter. Give us points for that. I'm still calling it Twitter. So this is uh, from a great account that I recommend people follow named Edmund Smirk. Um, conservatives get the entire Taylor Swift story wrong. The last dude Taylor dated was an unambitious and effeminate British actor who turned her into a forever girlfriend of six years. She is a hopeless romantic who stuck around even as he hid their relationship, made her walk in the outside of the road, and forestalled family formation. Taylor had to lead the relationship and play the masculine role. This is why it didn't work, because, of course, it would not. It rarely, if ever, does. The conservative worldview has been completely vindicated, yet we are not celebrating. Instead, we have to complain about faked wokeness because conservatives are enthralled to a reality television host who she, similar shock to most suburban women voters, does not like. The other one, and this one really resonated with me because I have a 13-year-old daughter who uh, was quite excited uh, last night with Taylor Swift's announcement at the Grammys that she has a new album coming out. She is a dedicated Swifty, but I thought this was also a really great and important take and one that resonated again with me. Uh, this guy, Justin Hart, I have nine kids. First of all, congratulations and Godspeed. <laughs> I had a teenager under my roof. I've had a teenager under my roof every day since 2007, almost all girls. I've gone to Hannah Montana and Demi Lovato concerts. I've cringed if my kids hummed a Lady Gaga song, and I've talked my girls, uh, to my girls to help them minimize their Katy Perry fandom. I've turned off Ariana Grande. And nobody is going to a Billie Eilish concert while they live here. Taylor Swift, on the other hand, is the least objectionable, least sexualized, least rainbow-pushing female pop star of my parental life. She has a steady masculine boyfriend who courted her, and this courtship is going on in public, in full view. The kind of thing that you would want to model for people is what is happening. She rearranges her schedule to be there for him, and engagement is likely in the cards, and hopefully marriage and kids after that. Parenthetical, frankly, our abysmal U.S. birth rate could use good role models like Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. Therefore, it is unbelievably stupid for MAGA and Trump to pick a fight with her. I think that is a fantastic point, and it is one of the reasons, too, why I have been very you know, soft on my daughter's Swifty fandom is because, again, it is there's not a lot 
to find really objectionable there. So I I think on one hand, we can dismiss some of the crazy PSYOP stuff as just being crazy terminally online people who are in a MAGA influencer world. But there's this greater point, I think, to be made about what we are witnessing as a cultural artifact and a representation of the kind of things I think all of us would be in favor of and that it is very stupid to get angry about it for totalitarian political reasons. I think what you're also seeing is sort of a visible version of what I think a lot of us who've worked in politics have been seeing over the last, you know, five, six years, almost a decade, actually, if you think about it, um, since Donald Trump came on the scene. And that is sort of an entertainmentizing of politics. Not that uh, politics has ever not been entertainment, but um, we've sort of turned it into a kind of perpetual outrage cycle. Um, Somebody's always angry. And now you have people at the center of it that have become extraordinarily wealthy by continuing to sort of terrify people. And in this case, it appeared like, you know, maybe Donald Trump doesn't like Taylor Swift. Maybe he's sort of jealous a little bit that um, somebody can fill stadiums. I mean, she played in Nashville and I live about two miles from Nissan Stadium where this where her concerts happened. And I could hear the concerts, the screaming from the concerts at my house. Like the fandom of this, the just the utter like, these girls love it. They love it. Grown women love it. Um, it's just entertaining. Um, and maybe that sort of passed out of view for some of our elderly presidential candidates. And so you saw this message kind of go out to people who might typically have ignored it um, to make a whole thing out of Taylor Swift. Um, and a lot of people responded by saying, this isn't how I think about it. This isn't how I um, respond to Taylor Swift. Like everything I've seen about Taylor Swift, like four-year-olds watch Taylor Swift. They love it. Um, just because it's so kind of wholesome and clean. And yeah, there's a couple of songs that we, you know, don't talk about just because they have some adult themes in them. But yeah, it's, it's so strange for us to look at something here and be happy about it. Um, we can't do that as a society anymore. <laughs> There's no money in people telling us that it's okay to be happy about something. And, and I think that that's kind of goes to deeper problems um, with how we live our lives and social media, but um, it is very odd. <laughs> you know, as I look at this story, two, two things come to mind. One, to build off what you said, it's a good story. And and I think I think that rubs people the wrong way. Like, how dare we have some sort of positive, wholesome-ish sort of story in the midst of all the problems we have right now in our culture? It, it's like taking the whole joke of like, you know, this is why we can't have nice things to making it an insistence of we shouldn't have nice things. Right. Like something has to yeah. be wrong with something has to be wrong. So we need to find something wrong with this because it just can't be what it is. And we can't celebrate that. I think, you know, it's it's actually sort of a, a Disney movie without all the politics, right? It's it's actually what you want to see. Uh, you you, you want to see this develop o- over time. And it's benign. Who cares in one sense? Like, big deal. I think secondly, more deeply, though, it, and this, this might explain why there's this sort of some 
interest in this being a, a conspiracy theory is that people just want, they need some sort of story, some sort of narrative to help them make sense of the world. And if we don't have one that's grounded in something deeply metaphysical, we'll, we'll find one in the culture, right? And, and there is this sense that I have, I have to figure out a way to make sense of all the chaos and the disorder and whatever I'm seeing. And then in comes Taylor Swift and the NFL. It's like, oh, there's one, right? So let me, let, let me connect some random dots and then recreate a story to make everything make sense. I'm going to pull in a little, a little football, a little pop stardom, a little vaccine stuff, maybe some presidential stuff, and I'll repackage that. And then that maybe will help, will help make sense. But there's this, this longing for some sort of super narrative, sort of meta narrative to, to help make sense of the world. And, and, and for people that are used to having meta narratives do that, and they don't have those anymore that are that are really binding. This one's really convenient. This is always my point about the explanation for why conspiracy theories come into existence, or at least one of the major reasons. If you think about the Kennedy assassination um, and compare it to the way that we think about, say, the Holocaust, if think of it as a scale. On one end, you have the Holocaust, arguably the 20th century's greatest crime, and on the other side of the scale, the Nazis, arguably the 20th century's greatest criminal. You can argue about the communists if you want to, but you know, let's go with it. They seem to balance. But you look at the Kennedy assassination, on one hand, you have this incredibly consequential man in John F. Kennedy, and on the other hand, this incredibly inconsequential-seeming person in Lee Harvey Oswald. And you just have a hard time thinking that that balances, because it doesn't. It doesn't balance on that scale. Um, But the reality is that seemingly inconsequential people can do consequential things, and Oswald does in this case. But because it doesn't seem to balance, you, you want to put some weight on the other end. So it's like it's the CIA or it was Castro or it was all these different things that just make it seem like it should it should be more just this way than this, you know, person that the Soviet Union didn't even want kills this, you know, young and attractive president of the United States. Um It's why these conspiracy theories end up being so bizarre. And I think there's some interesting things to get into about the and I'm not recommending we do it today. But, you know, the Charlie Cook on the National Review podcast made a good point about this being totalitarian for the people that are making these arguments. And I think what he meant by that is everything gets subsumed into politics for them. Yeah. Everything is about a narrative about, you know, dear leader Donald Trump. And, you know, so the, the NFL, Taylor Swift, uh, you know, every possible thing has to be filtered through this lens of how does this impact MAGA or Donald Trump or something like that. I think that's where the unhealthy part of it comes from. Um, but the, you know, this is why I wanted to focus on just the kind of the, the heart of the story, which is such a quintessentially American story with, you know, the, the <laughs> football player and essentially, you know, Taylor Swift and like the head cheerleader role. It's a delightful story and we should just be able to appreciate it and recognize it that it is the thing that so many people have been asking for for so long. You know, Emily's point notwithstanding about some adult themes and some of her songs. Sure, she's she's a growing older, you know, getting older and 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 wants to talk about more adult and complex things. But it is the pop icon that we've kind of wanted. It is not Miley Cyrus. It is not her twerking on the stage at the Grammys. Um, it is her being a normal person. And we should just revel in that normality a little more. I think there's something to be said for not 
understanding sort of these cultural gestalt moments where just suddenly everybody likes something and we can't really explain it. I know. Like it has to be, it has to be false somehow. Yeah, it has to be false. Somebody has to, in this day and age, be pushing a narrative that creates this sort of foundational excitement that gets people to spend a billion dollars to go and see the heiress tour all over the world. I think we've had this many times before. Elvis, the Beatles, is music is pretty notorious for, I mean, I'm wearing a Jimmy Buffett shirt right now and there's like millions of people who will continue to hold Jimmy Buffett concerts, even though he passed six months ago. You have these actual movements that kind of come out of people just wanting to have fun and wanting to do something that they like to do. And it becomes a cultural thing with no political explanation. Um, But we're so conditioned now that we have to give it a political lens. We have to find some a conspiracy or something that ties this all together, even though really like she's actually living out one of her music videos where she ends up with the captain of the base or the captain of the football team. And, you know, maybe she'll get a happily ever after out of it. And we should be pretty excited about that. The all American muscly guy um, gets the, you know, blue state, red state girl, basically. (laughs) Um, And her political her political gravitas isn't really significant. I mean, even here in Tennessee, they thought that her endorsement for, I believe it was Phil Breslin against Marsha Blackburn was going to turn the tides and and nobody really cared. Um, it turns out that most people who are not terminally online can sort of separate entertainment from um, a Pfizer conspiracy to get everyone vaccinated for COVID-19. So I yeah, I want to set everyone straight, but before I do that, I do want to acknowledge that I think Eric accidentally turned Lee Harvey Oswald into a cat poster. Uh, you know, inconsequential people do <laughs> amazing things. Um, please don't emulate Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, so no, let me let me let me In just no let way, me just set anybody yeah. straight who wants to know what's really going on here. The real conspiracy is uh, the NFL rigged the NFC championship game so the Lions would lose so that Eminem <laughs> couldn't be at the Super Bowl to at the end endorse Jared Goff to be the first third party candidate to be president since Abraham Lincoln. Uh, that's the real conspiracy. Trust me, I'm a lifelong Lions fan. Um, that's what's really going on here. No, of course it's ridiculous. Um, in fact, it's so <laughs> ridiculous that I wonder. Um, and and I hadn't I didn't have time to look myself, but I almost wonder if this sort of thing actually has its origins from deeply cynical places. There are people on the right who just make up stuff to see if they can get it on TV. And in this case, it worked. You had news outlets, you had Saturday Night Live, all the late night talk shows, and you have us here on Act and Unwind yeah. talking about a just patently ridiculous idea. Um, and. I would not be surprised if, in fact, the origins of this are completely cynical and unserious. And it's the sort of thing that um, it is worth us talking about because we're acknowledging that. And and as you you know premise this whole thing, it comes from just being way, way, way too online. Um, as Emily put it, way too political. Um, in fact, politics is kind of that that transcendent meta narrative, as as Anthony pointed out. Um, for some people, and I think if if you find yourself thinking, yeah, maybe there is a sigh up here with you know Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, go to church. Like <laughs> this is a sign. Turn off the the computer. Do your cross. Say our Father. Like 
change your life and change uh, the God that you worship because right now you got your priorities backwards. I was going to give a. Um, grass. <laughs> uh, I, I appreciate the uh, the recommendation to go to church because I was actually going to give a slightly different example, which is the for people who who do need to touch grass, who need to get offline. If you're reading these kinds of things and think that they kind of make sense to you in some way, um, like. I was going to say go to church, although that is a perfectly great recommendation and probably the better recommendation than what I'm going to give. But I was going to say, just go down to your local bar and try to describe this theory to any of the random patrons who are there and see what the reaction would be. And this is one of the problems of the Internet. And this is something I remember observing a number of years ago that, you know, if you Take this for example. If if you're in you know a friend group or, or even in a workspace and you make a slightly off color comment, there would be someone who cares about you in the real world who would pull you aside and would say like you know that that really wasn't cool. You shouldn't make a joke like that or make a comment like that. But when it happens online, two different things happen. You get one group of people who sweep in who want to excommunicate you from public life forever. Right? The whole phenomenon of canceling people for you know bad um, bad comments that they they make or bad attempts at jokes. And you get another group of people who jump in and go, no, you're absolutely right. Continue with that line of thought. And nobody actually stops to say like, dude, what? Um, if you try to describe the actual conspiracy theory to any normal person who isn't one of the just, you know, few million who use Twitter on a regular basis, Nobody would get it. Nobody would understand it. It would seem utterly bizarre to them, and people should take that opportunity to get a reminder by talking to actual normal human beings to remind them that these things aren't really real. I want to move to our final topic, which was there was hearings on Capitol Hill last week that brought the CEOs of the major social media companies there for what has become an annual tradition. If you're familiar with one of my favorite films, Thank You for Smoking, as Nick Naylor says near the end in the congressional hearing that he is participating in, um, you know, don't let it, you know, don't let yourself be fooled. The public beating has not gone out of style. And that's essentially what these hearings are. They bring these tech CEOs to Capitol Hill for them to be berated by members of Congress. Congress to serve the interests of those members of Congress's fundraising and potentially some legislation. But this one stood out to me because of the context of it. And I think one of the things that Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, did that was on one hand effective, but on the other hand, horribly demagogic, was to make reference to uh, a people who families, some of them who are in the audience of this hearing, who have family members, children who took their lives over cyberbullying that they experienced and that cyberbullying having happened on platforms owned by Meta in this uh, particular case. And Holly berating Mark Zuckerberg to stand up and apologize to the people who's, uh, who lost loved ones as a result of this. Um, I think it was on one hand uh, effective and on the other hand completely disgusting because it is just absolute – it is the picture of the kind of demagoguery that people think happens in these kinds of hearings. Josh Hawley is just a more distilled, uncut example of it in this particular case. But there does this does seem to be a prelude to some kind of legislation that may attempt to keep – younger people off of social media. And I'll throw this open to everybody just by saying that the thing that I find kind of 
bizarre about this to me as somebody who's been observing um, politics and particularly the political right for a long time, how far they've gotten away from what I used to hear, which was the notion of, you know, the government is not your parent and the government is not, it's not its job to step in and to act as a parent in these cases. As I mentioned earlier, I have a 13-year-old daughter. She got a phone this last year. It's an Apple, you know, it's an iPhone. We use Apple's parental controls in order to restrict the content that she can be potentially exposed to. But we understand the risks that exist there. There are kinds of third-party software that you can utilize if you don't want to use, if you either don't have an iPhone or don't want to use the Apple system. There are things you can do as a parent. And I just find it interesting how many people seemingly are jumping in saying, you know, we need some kind of government action in order to uh, step in and parent better than parents are currently parenting. And I, I find that, to me, kind of unpersuasive. I mean, I, I find it interesting that Josh Hawley thinks the way to combat cyberbullying is to bully a nerd in person. Um, I don't, he managed to make Mark Zuckerberg sympathetic. Like, I, I felt bad for him. Um, this is a guy who he just wouldn't even let him talk. He'd ask these really loaded yes or no questions, and when he tried to give more of an explanation than that. He would just say, yes or no, yes or no. Like every time, talk over him. It's very, um, when did you stop beating your wife kind yeah, of I mean, loaded question. Really, really, really bad. And I mean, to your point, I agree. This, this sort of stuff, there are effective things parents can do. They're really, beyond even trying to, to outsource this to the government, I think there's still very little the government can do to actually limit this stuff if parents are not doing their jobs in the first place. And, and you have a self-selecting group. Who are the people who are you know, the kids who are going online too much? Or are they the kids whose parents are letting them go online too much? Who are the kids who are looking for value in all of in anonymous maybe peers online? The kids who are not getting that value in their home. Um, and that's not in any way to you know, blame the victim or anything like that. Um, I get it. Life is busy. I, again, I got four kids. I know sometimes you, you know, you put on a video, whatever, like, but it's just, it should be a wake up call to people to say, check on your kids and check on what they're doing and know what they're doing. Um, and you know, the, there isn't just an easy, the, the law cannot solve every problem. I mean, this kind of gets us back to square one. It's a threat system. Um, and it's the sort of thing that unless you're going to somehow threaten parents, for their kids' uh, internet usage, and even, I don't even know if you can reliably track that, um, but if that were the case, then maybe you'd get some kind of change in behavior, um, but it's the sort of thing that this should be a matter of prudence, because there's a lot of gray areas here. There are a lot of people who their kids have, you know, a, their own YouTube channel, and it's fine. They're not being bullied or getting bullied or whatever, um, because they have people looking out for them. So, uh, yeah, I find I find the whole call ridiculous. Whatever legislation may actually come out of this, I'm very skeptical it will be effective. And I think if you are concerned about your children, you should tell your children that you are concerned about them. That will be the most effective thing you can do. I mean, if if you really wanted to, to know what's going on, I mean, go go to a a mall. I guess do people even go to malls anymore. Maybe go to a grocery store. They do here store. in Grand Rapids. Okay. The, the Grand Rapids one is more stores open in it than any mall I've been to in years. It's amazing. It's like stepping back into the '90s. Has anyone seen parents in public? I mean, the reason parents can't check on their kids because their parents are on their phones, and parents yeah. are on Facebook with their siblings and high school classmates, and they're on Instagram and TikTok. 
And essentially, we've given up on parents because parents are just as irresponsible as children. There's very little difference in, in, ter- in terms of usage between a 45-year-old mom and her 16-year-old daughter or, or, or vice, vice versa. And so it's like locus parentis, right? We need, we need someone to parent the children because the parents can't do it. And of course, of course, the parents can't do it because the, the parents' usage isn't even diff- that different. Parents are just as addicted uh, to their phones and these social media platforms uh, as their teens or preteens. And, and in, terms of, in terms of wisdom, there's just a lack of, of, of wisdom and a lack of knowledge. Every time I have a conversation about this in a, a, with a group of parents, there's always that parent that thinks, well, well my, my child is fine and that my child can handle this, and if I just teach them the right sort of moderation, they'll be fine. It's, a, it's, it's, it's one of these things, if, if you've looked at some of the, the data, there is a large majority of teens who believe that social media is, is damaging to other teens, but not themselves. And I think with a lot of parents, it's the same thing. Well, well, well social media is damaging to other people's kids, but not my own. And the data is saying, actually, it's bad for everyone. And so the psychologists are now lobbying Congress to do something because the parents are, are completely impotent on, the, on this issue. I see this sort of happen in real time because I have really young kids. And it's odd. I mean, for me, I think I'm sort of a Ralph Nader on social media, unsafe at any speed. Like any consumption is bad. And I say this as someone who is terminally online. <laughs> like I make my living being online. Um, it, it's just not a safe environment for anybody. It turns everyone from the first people who use it all the way up to your 70 year old grandpa into just awful, horrendous people. And you might think that this just happens on TikTok or bullying just happens on Facebook. Go to next door which is yeah. not children at all. That is just homeowners in a neighborhood or your ring.com like neighborhood and watch somebody try to do something and get bullied senseless. It is bizarre what social media has done to our culture. Um, and so we, we need to, as a culture, address this. I don't think that there's absolutely any law even if you aim it at teens, even if you say you cannot be on Facebook until you're 14, all of us have been teens. We all know that we get around those rules, right? I mean, everyone who will sign up for a Facebook with a .edu address that nobody has ever heard of before or some shady Gmail that doesn't have um, a 14 plus, those things people get around. Um, but unless you just shut it down for everybody. I don't think you're going to minimize the damage that social media has done to our culture. So as adults, we have to sort of take it into our hands and say, we are the ones saying, you can't watch this on YouTube. You can't go to this concert. I'm going to cut in on what you do after school. Um, the same has to be said for phones. I mean, I I have a second grader here next door that I see on the Apple Watch all the time and talking about phones and somehow is getting all of this communication with her friends that the parents maybe don't see. And I assume that my children are communicating that way in ways that I don't see. So if you're not at home saying, yeah, I know mommy's on the phone all the time, um, but it's bad. 
Aggie too. Oh, sorry, my daughter has an opinion on that. <laughs> yeah, it, it it actually makes me wonder if 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 maybe the, the the people who should be called in for the hearing are America's parents, uh, because they're the ones who ultimately control. And and I, I hear parents say, "I can't control my kids." Yes, you can. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is this is this is what they're really saying is it's harder to do than I want it to be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But you actually can do this. Right. And and so maybe maybe the, the, the problem is that we have we've we've discouraged parental responsibility and placed the responsibility on the state to do what parents ought to be doing. It's just easier that way. And I've had parents say things like, well, I don't want to have a fight. No, have the fight. Right. Yeah. Well, instead of having the fight, let's just pass a law. I think I think that that that's part of what, what's going on here. I think you're, seeing, you're making a good point too that this is it seems to be more downstream of problems in the approach to to parenting, and there was a seemingly kind of change. I don't know how many years ago where you saw more people who wanted to be their child's friend than they wanted to be their child's parent, and there is some necessary things that you have to do, and there and there are ways that you can you know a, a, address this. Um, you know, you, if the argument is, and I, I did hear this in some of the conversation I listened to about this over the last week, that it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's really hard for parents, you know, their, their kids, all their friends have phones. So like, there's a lot of peer pressure in order to get your child a phone. It's like, if the whole point is to be able to, you know, have, um, you know, phone or text communication with people, there are, as my friend, Matt Paprocki, who's the president of the Illinois Policy Institute, who wanted to get off social media. He got what he said was a dumb phone. It was, it really only has the ability to make phone calls and the ability to send text messages, uh, SMS messages. So it's not even an Apple. It's you're not sending an iMessage like that. You can provide something that just does those base functions that doesn't have the ability to install a Facebook or an Instagram or all of that. You know, at some point, yes, there are going to be a lot of peer pressure kind of things that are going to weigh on your kids and your kids are going to lobby you pretty hard in order to let them do things or give them things that they want. The traditional role of the parent is to keep in mind what the appropriate thing is for a child of their age and knowing what their maturity level is and being able to say no when it is is necessary that you say no. And I don't, I just do not find the idea compelling that if parents aren't going to do that on themselves, it is effectively going to be outsourced to Josh Hawley to do this for us, especially going back to Dylan's point that it there is a bit of an irony in complaining about bullying in the process of bullying someone to make your point. Yeah, I so I, I do want to take one step back. I do think the, the data is troubling and concerning. Yes. But there is also a problem, if you factor in everything else we've been saying, with uh, selection bias. The sort of people who are involved, the kids that are way too online are the kids who have parents who are letting them be way too online. So you're, you're getting a skewed group anyway. Um, so keep that in mind. And yes, it, it is hard. Um, you know, we have one computer in the house. I tell the kids it's for homework. Mm -hmm. Of course, they try to use it for other things, mm -hmm. right? And sometimes they do. But they know that they've done the wrong thing when they do because I will be upset with them, right? This is something that it doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect, but you have to put in that effort to to be a good parent. And And to the parenting side... Um, I resisted getting a smartphone forever. My phone company made me. Uh, they didn't support the, the dumb phone that I had. Maybe there's some way to go back. I probably would do it. But even so, since getting one, it was, I think, late 2020 I had to do it. 
Um, I have not. I've refused to install social media. I've refused to install work email. Um, it is basically, you know, I can Google stuff if I need directions or if, you know, oh, what's what's the recipe for whatever? You know, like I have like there's some uses. There are times that I you know, I play Scrabble with my brother. Um, it's annoying, but it's not toxic, <laughs> you know, um, but that's about that's about it. And when I get home, I try to just plug it in, leave it in the bedroom like you can adapt habits for yourself. You need to get some 21st century asceticism so that when you get home, you put that technology away and you actually give some time to your kid. And it's hard. Like, I need those breaks for my kids, too, to relax so I can actually be pleasant when I speak to them instead of always being crabby. That's a constant struggle. I, I know what that's like, but things can be done. It just takes some work. You do have to say no. I think there's a culture in terms of parenthood where it's not okay to say no, where we've got to, you know... I still do gentle parenting. I, I am not a part of that culture. Yeah. <laughs> like, I still say no. Like, you can't watch YouTube. What happens, even if you watch something totally innocuous on YouTube, my children's brains spike somewhere and they just get nuts. And then my life is miserable for two hours while I try to kill, keep them down, you know? Um, but you just say no. And, it, and it, it sucks and it's hard. And I think as Gen X and millennial parents too, we kind of want to give them stuff that we didn't have. Like my parents always said, no, you can't play video games. My parents always said, no, you need to go outside. So I want to give them the opportunity to do something I didn't have to do. Okay. Um, sorry, we're homeschooling the rosary right now. So she asks questions. <laughs> but I'll look at your work in just a sec, bub. Um, but it's just, you have to be able to say no when you're, you're going to sit here now with a rosary book and an onion and that's what she's got, um, (laughs) instead of watching Bluey today. Perfect. I'm not sure if 21st century asceticism or rosary book and an onion is the best band name to come out of this episode, (laughs) but one of them definitely is. She picked the onion. She picked the onion. Yes. I mean, it, it, it would be really great if we had a revolution of parents who decided that we are, are going to, as a community of parents, make decisions for our community about how our children together are going to engage these resources. And, and unfortunately, you have parents in isolation saying no and other parents saying yes and then fears about their, their children's social status and connection but if there's a massive community of parents who've decided together, we're all going to say no together, then it actually changes the contours of how their children are going to have connection. And it, it seems that, that, that those communities where parents are deciding together as a, as a group that we're going to say no, some of those pressures that, that are, are, are described in terms of their response, in terms of the, the defense of why my kid has to have access to these things for social reasons, is completely removed. And maybe that's, that's the problem, is that we don't have enough parents in communities together saying no, so their children can have a different future together. I'm also hoping that as like a Gen X parent, that my kids are just going to see social media is so cringe and something their mom does like, Oh, my mom does that for work. I don't want to be on that crap. You know, I, I think I'm counting on the cringe factor to dial it back for my kids. And the kids that were came of age in COVID, and this is something that people aren't kind of looking at 
Gen Z is one thing. Gen Z is the product of late boomers and early millennials and uh, Gen A or Gen Alpha that's coming up behind them, like my kids, our kids, they are savage. They have owned Gen Z. And I think being raised by Gen X is very different than being raised by you're the last kids of your boomer parents that sort of didn't get a lot of attention growing up. I think this is a, it's an entirely different segment of parenthood too. So it'll be 10 years before we see what kids like my kids are going to do with social media. But my guess is they just think it's disgusting. I, I always I always want to make this point when we talk about something like social media is to, is to remind people that it really has not been around very long. And we have in many ways, just not yet really learned how to live with it. And, you know, this is not to take anything away from the tragedies that the families that were in this hearing have experienced. It, it is absolutely horrible what has happened. You know, the opprobrium, in my sense, should be directed at the people who were doing this kind of bullying, not the mechanism that they used in order to do that. Bullying has existed since time immemorial. You know, I'm sure we probably all have stories of ways in which we were bullied when we were younger kids. Um, it wasn't fun and it wasn't pleasant, but it is something that has existed. I just want to remind people that while I don't, it, it is not an excuse to not think critically about the role of things like social media in this form of technology in society and be careful and cautious about that. There is just a time problem. We have not yet really learned how to live with it, and we will evolve to the point of learning how to live with it just as we have evolved to the point of learning how to live with all other kinds of technologies that were disruptive when they were introduced. But it does take some time to figure these things out, and I understand the impatience, and when you marry it with stories like you heard in that hearing of people who've taken their lives, it is is awful, but it is the kind of thing that spurs people to act radically in a way that isn't always all that helpful. And I think the the general advice of like wanting to empower parents more and understanding that you have a, a role and responsibility as a parent and you should act on it with a little bit more confidence than some people seem to be willing to, at, at least at this moment. It, it, it happened really fast. It right? did. And, and, and so some of the negative externalities that have emerged are things that Mark Zuckerberg wasn't thinking about when he was at Harvard building, what was it called initially? The, the, the well, it was the Facebook, but it was like, it was basically the a Facebook. hot or not that they, yeah. um, but that they ranked the people who were in uh, attending Harvard. At yeah, the I mean, this, this wasn't, this wasn't what, 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 he, what he had in mind. And so, I mean, I was watching the hearing, I was watching his face and you could see the struggle. I mean, I, I, I the, 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 the burden, the pressure. I mean, these are conversations he didn't think he was going to be having. And, and so he was compelled to do something because there were these people sitting behind him. This just happened so quickly. And now we're at a point where where dopamine is what it is. And that wasn't something that we thought about. And so now we have to backtrack and figure out how to mediate and manage something that has a power over us that we we actually didn't didn't think through on the design side. Also, technology is self-limiting too. I mean, we also consume what we want to consume and a lot of things have failed. So, the VR headsets, Oculus Rift, a lot Do you of this Google stuff, Glass. I, Google Glass, things of like this immersive sort of nature, they don't work as well as we think they do. Um, when you look back, I know there's this new one with Apple, but I, I don't know how 
successful it's going to be because people like a certain amount of freedom from technology. Um, it goes again to the question of being terminally online and what kind of information you consume. And there is a selection bias. The people who are most concerned perhaps about social media's impact on their kids are the people who need to be least concerned because they're the involved parents. They're the ones who are watching this and tuning in to see what Mark Zuckerberg says. Um, but we're also the first generation that grew up with it and we know how to pull it back from our lives to some extent. And we're learning how to alongside our kids. So there's there's something to be said for humanity ultimately triumphing. Um, we just can't be bothered with technology that's going to break on us like we're, we're running really long and I would have thrown one more comment, but this is why I actually think that, and this is a self-serving comment, so people are welcome to come after me if they want to, but you know, the the kind of, I am I am a um, elder millennial that is the sub uh um, generational designation that I have given the year that I was born. And I actually think we do have a very important perspective to bring to a lot of these conversations because unlike people who came after us who grew up in a world where all of this stuff already existed and it was already all around them, um, I can remember a time... I'm sure, you know, all of us here too, of course, can remember a time when this technology didn't exist. It wasn't omnipresent, but we also were there when it became omnipresent. I think so that should impart an understanding of like, we remember what the world was like before we see what the world is like now. And I think it should impart some perspective. So I, I'm, I am hoping people who do have that memory that isn't just the kind of like with apologies to all the boomers out there, the kind of, you know, the boomer attitude about onlineness, um, but who have been able to embrace the utility of these things, but also remember the time when your parents would say, go outside and come back when the street lights come on, um, that we were able to strike a better balance in the way that we utilize these things. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Acton Unwind or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. And I again want to encourage you to subscribe to our magazine, Religion and Liberty, where you can read not only John Grove's great essay that we discussed today, but other great pieces by Bishop, uh, Bishop Robert Barron, George Nash, Wilfred McClay, Sam Gregg, and many more. Only $29.99 will get you four issues of our beautiful magazine in your mailbox four times per year. Look in the show notes of this episode for a link where you can subscribe to Religion and Liberty. Thanks to Anthony, thanks to Dylan, thanks to Emily, and a special thanks to John Grove. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. <laughs>